KTR 101.9 FM. Welcome to Simurg, the land of tales. Every Thursday, 5 to 6 p.m. Today's Simurg is devoted to the ecological stories of indigenous people, the Marshallese Islanders. The Marshallese people. The remaining families from the American nuclear project Bravo in the Pacific waters, the ecology that was evaporated and contaminated for the next 26,000 years on the Earth. The other story is the tale of Iraqi people of Fallujah town near Baghdad, who are the victims. Of the uranium contamination brought to the town by American troops, and the third story is the story of this place, the story of Delaney people in Canada. Stay with us until 6 p.m. today. Administration goes to the leaders of Bikini Atoll,、uh, which eventually became one of the Ground Zero testing sites,、uh, and brought together the community and sat them down and said, "You know, we want you to be involved in helping us do something that will bring peace to the world, and and God wants us to do this." You know, sort of drawing on the fact that it was the divine right of the U.S. to test and to have these weapons and. Uh, they, they, you know, the U.S. didn't really know what these weapons were going to do at the time, so they had、um, no ability to, you know, accurately portray what the effects would be like for the Marshallese. So they sort of did this general request. This interview with Holly Barker is taken from Talking Stick TV on this anthropologist and writer, journalist, and activist、um, book on. Consequential damages of nuclear war at the Rungslap and the Rungslap report by Barbara Rose Johnson and Holly M. Barker. So, 
This powerful, sad, and outrageous uh, book is a dramatic history of America's second nuclear war, the one that the U.S. government waged with nuclear weapons tests uh, in the Pacific against the indigenous Marshallese people and uh, with the atomic veterans who were ordered to participate in the atomic and hydrogen bomb tests of the U.S. on Marshallese people, the consequences were devastating for both the indigenous and the service personnel, and the cover-ups were criminal, and the lessons are to be learned and even relevant pretty much today. Um, so the Ronschlatt report is at the top of the books of 2008, uh, according to Martin J. Sherwin's uh, um, kind of quote on the book, uh, I later listened to Holy Barker talking about the true story of the people of Ronschlag and the Marshallese Islands. Um, the U.S. tested the Bravo event, which was the equivalent of about a thousand Hiroshima bombs. Uh, and it was planned by the U.S. to be the, the biggest and dirtiest weapon it had ever tested. Uh, and so that particular um, detonation caused a lot of illness and um, despair uh, amongst the Marshallese. And after that event, um, there was a petition that went to the United Nations by the Marshallese. Um, the Marshallese did everything they were supposed to in terms of... Uh, uh, you know, protesting the events and the occupation of the U.S. of their lands for the testing purposes. And so they drafted a petition to the United Nations uh, calling on the U.S. Uh, to end the testing program. And because it was um, a colonial arrangement at the time, it was the United States that spoke for the Marshall Islands at the United Nations. And so the ambassador at the time went to the Secretary General of the United Nations and said, I have this petition from the Marshallese, but we need to finish our testing series. And so um, the U.S. and the United Nations agreed to hold on to the Marshallese petition, finish the detonations that had been scheduled, and then to bring the petition forward to the United Nations. And, and by then they had finished their testing series. So... Um, the Marshallese protested loudly and vigorously and through appropriate channels, but um, because the U.S. was the, the colonial speaker for the Marshallese at the time, they, there was no ability to do anything differently. And it's, you know, we see this right now with France and French Polynesia, for instance, when that colonial arrangement is still in place. You know, the, the Tahitian people, the people of French Polynesia, aren't able to protest what the colonial power is doing. Yeah, in terms of the, the land itself, you know, there are only 70 square miles of land in the entire country. So land is the most precious resource there is. Um, you know, land is where people get their social identity. It's where they get their economic support, their livelihood. Uh, it determines where you're buried, where you can live. It, you're everything about who you are in the world. Uh, and so we don't have that equivalent in the Western world. You know, if, if my land in Seattle became irradiated, I would pick up and move someplace else, and sure, I would miss it a whole lot, but there isn't that sense of um, connection to place that a lot of indigenous communities have. 
And so for the Marshallese, when their land was either obliterated, um, as in, you know, it no longer exists because it was vaporized by the test, or it became too contaminated to live on, um, then that had sort of catastrophic implications for Marshallese culture and, and for the people. And again, in a way that we can never fully appreciate in a Western sense. Um, in terms of the, the health impacts, um, you know, the radiation impacts have been severe in the Marshall Islands. And, you know, radiation is a mutagenic, and so it, it causes cells to mutate. Anything that's alive, plants, animals, people. Um, and so when the people were exposed to radiation, the, the DNA begins to get altered. And so this gets passed on for, for several generations. And so it's not just the Marshallese who are alive during the testing period. You know, certainly the people who are alive then suffered incredible burdens and probably suffered the most out of the, all the Marshallese. But this isn't an issue that's gone away. It's not just a historical event because the... Um, the violence of the testing program is imprinted in the DNA of the people, and they carry it on. You know, for instance, a, a woman has her full supply of eggs in her body when she's born. Uh, and so when your eggs begin to get exposed to radiation, that's, that's all your reproductive potential that gets affected. And so, um, we're, you know, in the Marshall Islands, you see second, third generation effects, and um, you know, as an anthropologist, I, I've done a lot of interviewing in the Marshall, with the Marshallese and look, talking particularly with the women uh, who've been exposed to radiation. And, you know, certainly the, the reproductive abnormalities have been um, one of the most acute experiences uh, for the Marshallese and certainly one of the saddest, most disturbing events. Uh, I was fortunate to work for the Marshall Islands government and... Um, they've got some brave and fabulous political leaders who, you know, in the, the post-colonial relationship have been trying to assert their right to reclaim the history of the nuclear weapons testing. Uh, and so when I was working for the Marshall Islands government, um, they asked me to conduct these oral histories uh, because the Marshallese government thought that the U.S. sort of account of history of what the testing had done didn't fully um, uh, grasp the scope of the damages and injuries that the Marshallese people were experiencing. Um, and so the U.S. had always really minimized what the effects of the testing program were, whereas the Marshallese knew about it but had never really had an ex opportunity to document it fully. Um, because during um, the colonial relationship, it was all U.S. scientists and U.S. health physicists and um, you know, all of the people who were involved in the testing program were U.S. researchers, and so that information was controlled and interpreted by the U.S. government. So post-1986 became an opportunity for the Marshallese government to do its own research. Uh, and so um, the Marshall Islands government had asked me to conduct oral histories um, with a lot of the people and communities who were downwind from the nuclear weapons testing. Um, and I began to focus quite a bit on the women as a result. Um, I think of, you know, me being a woman and having access um, to the women made it, um, uh, you know, I guess a likely research project. Uh, and so what the women began to tell me, this certain themes started to emerge as I talked to them. I probably did more than 200 interviews with 
uh, folks who are directly downwind from the testing program. Um, but the women in particular would talk about, um, you know, how before the testing program, Marshallese had always had stillbirths or miscarriages because they had always existed, you know, as, as they do in any human population. But after their exposure to radiation, they started to give birth to um, what they considered almost non-human offspring that they had never seen before. And um, what was interesting is embedded in the language are, are clues about these new reproductive abnormalities. That um, the women had to devise an entirely new language, really, to describe what they were giving birth to because the Marshallese language never had these words before because they had never been exposed to radiation before, so they didn't need them. Uh, and so women started talking about giving birth to great babies. Um, and great babies are, you know, in English we call them hydatiform molar pregnancies, which are extremely rare. You know, they're maybe about one in a million. Uh, but it's um, when mitosis begins and after conception and the cells started to start to divide, at some point with the hydatiform molar pregnancy, the, the cells stop dividing and then just start to grow and get uh, large. Uh, and it's um, when a woman a woman looks like she's pregnant and goes through all the steps of pregnancy, and then at the end give birth to what the Marshallese essentially call grapes. It looks like a bunch of of grapes of like large purple cells. And um, the frequency um, of this occurrence is is evident in the fact that they gave it a name because they had to. It wasn't su such an anomaly uh, that you know people talked about it as one event. It became prevalent enough that they had to devise words for that. And so within the Marshallese uh, language, there's evidence of women giving birth to what they call, um, you know, coconut head babies or sailfish babies. If you can, you know, picture the big marlin fish with the protrusions of the fin on the back, and that's because many of the babies were born with the spines actually outside of their body or with grotesque deformations along the spine. And so they look to their local environment and look for non-human words within an island atoll ecosystem to try, you know, sort of um, to describe what was indescribable, if that makes any sense. And in addition... Watches the films that were made about the U.S. nuclear testing there, um, you frequently see segments of uh, U.S. scientists and or doctors examining the Marshallese yeah. after these tests. Uh, were they giving them medical help then, or were they just uh, recording the results of their tests? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a, another disturbing aspect of this whole history. You know, following the Bravo event in 1954, the United States set up a top-secret medical program that was called Project 4.1. And Project 4.1 was to study the effects of radiation on human beings. And, you know, prior to this time, the United States had conducted um, lots of medical experiments um, exposing animals like lab rats to radiation and understanding what radiation would do to these animals. But uh, the Marshall Islands became an opportunity for the U.S. to take it to the next step to understand what radiation would do to human beings. And so 
there were aspects of purposeful exposure of Marshallese to radiation for the purpose of scientific study, uh, with the idea that if the U.S. was ever in a nuclear war, the U.S. needed to understand how its citizens would fare, or if U.S. soldiers were sent into a nuclear exchange, the U.S. government would know how the soldiers would survive. And so the Marshallese did become human test subjects to study the effects of radiation. Um, and some of this we see uh, with the community of Rongelap in particular. Rongelap was an atoll that's um, uh, the closest inhabited atoll to Bikini, the ground zero location. Uh, and so when the U.S. was getting ready to detonate the Bravo shot on March 1st, 1954, Previously, for much smaller shots, the U.S. had relocated the Rongalapis as a precautionary measure, taken them off of their homelands while they conducted these tests uh, just to remove them from harm's way. But then on the day that the U.S. had decided, okay, they're getting ready to test their largest weapon ever, they purposely decided to leave the Rongalapis there. Um, also, weather accounts um, from the morning and the evening before the test show that the winds were blowing towards Rongelap and that the U.S. government was aware of that and that the winds were blowing exactly from the test site to Rongelap. Um, on the eve of the Bravo test, there was also a U.S. naval ship that was anchored right at Rongelap. Um, and that naval ship stayed um, when the Bravo shot was detonated. And then when it began to pick up um, the radiation cloud that was moving towards Rongelap and confirmed that radiation had come to Rongelap, that ship took off. It left, and it left without taking the people of Rongelap with it. There had been an opportunity. They could have removed the Marshallese and evacuated them from Rongelap, but they didn't. Uh, and so the people stayed as the radiation um, coated their islands, and um, for communities like Rongelap that had never seen radiation before, when the radioactive ash fell from the from the nuclear detonation, the people thought it was snow in many cases. Um, you know, I interviewed people who said that they went out and played in it because they had always heard about snow or seen pictures of snow, but they had never experienced it before. So when the white powder or ash fell from the sky, uh, they went out, you know, kids put it on their eyes like makeup or on their lips like lipstick. Some people tasted it and wanted to see how um, it smelled and put it in their pockets or, or brought it home. And so they really didn't have an understanding of the dangers because the U.S. hadn't conveyed that to them before. Um, and then once this community of Rongelap had been exposed to the radiation, the U.S. government left them there for about two days um, before coming in and evacuating them. Um, and then the U.S. came in and evacuated them and moved them to Kwajalein Atoll, which was a military base at the time, put them in a barbed wire um, and camp, uh, you know, a barbed wire fenced-off area where um, the U.S. doctors came in and enrolled them into this top-secret medical program, Project 4.1, without their knowledge or without their consent. And this project became a study to monitor what radiation would do to the people. Um, you know, not treating them, not taking care of their illnesses as, you know, a normal doctor-patient relationship would be to try to improve the health or well-being of the subjects. But this was 
um, to take photographs of, uh, you know, what did the burns in the skin look like, um, and then to watch it over time to really understand what the effects would be. And so, you know, the Marshallese that I um, interviewed would often talk about how, um, you know, they had burns that went down to their bones where the bones were visible and their, their feet, they were in agony. And all the U.S. would do was take pictures of their illnesses and, you know, um, without giving them painkillers, without giving them treatments, it was, um, you know, they understood right from the, the beginning that they were like test subjects. And it, it's interesting because the Marshallese had to, again, going back to the language, they had to borrow a term from the English language to um, sort of convey these experiences as research subjects. And now you hear Marshallese talk about being guinea pigs and uh, that animal, the guinea pig, doesn't exist in the Marshall Islands, but that, that term is needed to um, convey the dehumanization that they felt as being um, test subjects. Well, medical help is severely uh, limited in the Marshall Islands. So uh, if you were from one of two communities, Rongelap and Utrecht, that are two downwind communities, um, if you were on one of those um, uh, two areas, on March 1st, 1954, uh, then the U.S. presumes that you are exposed to radiation. This piece is from Chobi Fatah, the Iraqi artist who sings the song Boron, meaning rain in Kurdish language. Simur chose Chobi's piece as a transitional to the upcoming ecological story of indigenous people of Iraq as she prayers, let the rain wash our tears.
withdrawing its forces from Iraq. But the Iraqi people themselves, meanwhile, are having to deal with what appears to be a more immediate and devastating legacy from the war. Stories are now emerging of increased deformities in the country's newborn babies, as well as a dramatic rise in the number of children with cancer. Dateline's Walkley award-winning reporter, Fuad Hardy, an Iraqi Australian, went back home to investigate. As you know, we always warn our viewers when we are about to show images or sequences that we think you might find upsetting. Well, I've had a long look at Fuad's piece, and it's definitely upsetting, confronting in fact. Nevertheless, I urge you to stick with it. It says a lot about the ethical dilemma of modern armed conflicts like Iraq. I'm travelling to Fallujah about two hours drive west of Baghdad. The scene of fierce fighting between Sunni insurgents and US forces in 2004. My driver is Mohammed, a mechanic who lives here. He remembers a happier time. He says that has all changed now. They don't have very high hopes of marrying and starting a family these days because they are scared. This is district in Fallujah city. Muhammad and his new bride stayed in the Fallujah throughout the fighting. They say there is a terrible legacy. My daughter was few months when the battle with the American forces started. They were fierce battles from the U.S. Army and the American forces moved us to here. There was heavy aerial bombing that surrounded every and each piece of our lives. A while later, Zahra was born disabled. She has six digits uh, on both her hands and here here you see 
that here are her feet with six six fingers as you see there are the effects the doctors wouldn't give us any prescription uh, she also had a general paralysis an allergy in the in her bronchitis and also uh, has mind uh, retardation uh, I had high hopes for my daughter to be born to take her out take her to school in two years all kids her age started a school and she, she she's just not able when he was three my my other son he started to have a hole in the crown of her, his, his head and he Away Mohammed and many others believe U.S. Old. bullets and bombs, which spread depleted uranium, have made Fallujah toxic. He wants me to meet some of his neighbors. my son's condition is that he is disabled and I was pregnant with him when Fallujah was attacked. I was pregnant during the first attack and he was barely 40 days old during the second. So that's why this happened to my son Abdul Rahman. It's the effects of that bombing that Americans dropped on us. In general, Fallujah's women are not having children anymore. Do you know women like neighbors, friends? I know all of them. Do they miscarry or can't they fall pregnant? They have miscarriages. They can't have babies born. My sister miscarries all the time. The same condition. The same condition for everyone. All of them. All of them miscarrying babies. There are no babies being born the on this land anymore the cemeteries. So people were buried here in the spot's ground. And the locals say the curse of Fallujah continues. What is this? It's for children who were born with deformities and incurable diseases. They, they grow to about five or six months of age and they don't survive any longer. This whole symmetry is especially for children. This is our children. These are the deformed children. All of these graves, those behind you, this side, they're all children. They're all children of this land. This is for deformed children from Fallujah Hospital. I want to ask the doctors at Fallujah Hospital what they think is causing this tragedy. The hospital is clean, well equipped, and was paid for by the U.S. Pediatrician Dr. Samir Alanani says she has seen an increase in the numbers of deformed children. The cases that me and I am meeting now, or I am facing now, uh, are more than uh, before, I can say, 2002. The number is increasing after 2006. Increasing? Yes. How many percent? I can't give a percentage. Why? I can't give a percentage because there is no documentation. 
in the past or even now. Listen to me. There is no statistics at all. There is no documentation of, I, I can say, of uh, most of the cases, not all of the cases, but most of the cases. There is nothing documented. Uh, there should be some studies, there should be uh, some investigations. No, 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 no. Why? We have no facilities to do such investigations. It's a complex subject and it needs complex investigation. Traveling with us is a journalist, Mr. Ahmed Al-Naim, from a local paper. He also tried to talk to doctors without success. He refused categorizing, documenting, and direct saying that there was an official letter from the health department authorities by U.S. in relation to quote-unquote congenital deformities. The main reason is pressure from the American forces and the health ministry. The letter was sent to the Ambar Department of Health and to Fallujah General Hospital. I decided to head back to Baghdad, seeking more information. The health ministry refused all my requests for an interview, but Nermin Uthman, the minister for the environment, agreed to talk. She's working to clean up those parts of Iraq contaminated during the war. What we have is about 41 sites. The majority are in areas close to Baghdad um, that are contaminated, or in areas close to Basra, in the proximity of Basra. Central Baghdad. This is one of the many radioactive sites scattered across Iraq. Once the Department of Youth and Sport, it was badly damaged in the fighting for the city. Many of the shells and bullets contained depleted uranium. Mr. Omar Shoki is from the Environment Ministry. With barrels of contaminated material, including depleted uranium, or DU, stacked along the wall, I put on the protective overalls. These are the containers left from the U.S. Um, forces, and these are Alpha and the uranium. Um, isn't it contaminated? Uh, no, not now. Um, they're closed containers. We are on the fourth floor. Is this contaminated? Yes, these are all bullet marks on this wall and the readings were high but science and technology removed the contamination and now the reading is normal now we're on level 8 the bullets penetrated the walls see how the background reading has changed there is a reading we requested another cleanup to finish the job so there is a still uranium there it's more than the normal level. There is radiation activity, so they redo this area. When the shells hit, radioactive dust particles can contaminate large parts of the surrounding area. But people are not wearing suits like you, only if they walk around 
they will be contaminated and there are cars and traffics out there. Not far from this building is the Alwiya Children's Hospital in the central Baghdad. A baby has been delivered in the ambulance on the way here. I felt it was so wrong and didn't accept it. The medical committee recommended an abortion, but the baby was already six months and the mother was young, so I didn't agree and told her to have the baby. A good God and Creator will will help us. And now, look at her. Um, so many things wrong with her. Her father and mother are ex expecting me to show them the baby and they don't know what's wrong with the baby. Um, I sent them home, I'm the grandma and I will deal with this, I will tell them and I will show them the baby. Um, it's all because of the fighting and what has this Baby if her father sees her, she, he, he goes crazy. Oh, my God, will help us. The doctor calls me to see another baby, just two hours old. <laughs> this is tragic, doctor. This is a scary. It's a really sad situation. The baby's head is bigger than two, three adult people's head. The baby disappeared completely, and there is a herniation of the brain to show to the back. Yeah. of the baby. This is what we co common situation we've noticed uh, lastly. Okay? This baby is gasping. Put him on oxygen, please. Oxygen, oxygen, oxygen. And this baby was just... Down the corridor is another three months old baby with the facial deformities. Her name is Farah, which means happiness. She's been isolated from other babies because she is very sick. She has acute infections. She was very ill yesterday and she was almost uh, going to pass away. 
we gave her her medication and some plasma and she's just surviving. She felt so, we, we felt so sad in the section. Uh, we all like her. We love to hear her breathe, especially as we have children, we're mothers. A poor little girl, she, she's helpless. Just across the Tigers River is another hospital specializing in young cancer patients. After the loss of the war of American forces in 2004 and 2006 in Iraq, the children who come have increasingly cancer rates. Uh, we didn't have these cases before. Is he your son? Yes. He has been almost a year. He has a tumor. He started losing weight and got skinny and we did a marrow test and it showed up that he has leukemia. They say it's to affect her words, I don't know why. She is Erbil and we took her to hematology department, we did a marrow test and they say that her condition is leukemia and very critical. God is generous and he will help us. Hassan was fine. Except some time ago, and they requested a test, and they said that he has a disease in blood. I can't cry anymore. Uh, my tears from so much crying, and I'm just with him, with my son. The hospital could not or would not give me any figure about the number of young leukemia patients. Let's talk about the war. Oh, maybe this is difficult. Yeah. You cannot say for sure that uh, what the war in what way affected our uh, problem in Iraq. But uh, our observations that the numbers are increasing for the newly diagnosed patients over the past 20 years. Again, I can't get no fame statistics. But as I film a technician testing blood, I begin to get an idea of the scale of the problem. How many cases do you detect per day? How many? It depends. Uh, sorry, sometimes 10, Almost, the numbers are, uh, if you're counting, uh, it's normal here. Uh, 
thousand some years ago. Those um, figures would mean thousand of cases a year in this one hospital. I returned to Aluya Hospital the next day. The baby has a complete facial defect. Dr. Nada Abbas is examining baby Farah. Her condition has improved, but her severe disabilities make me fear for her future. There is no eyelids for this baby since her birth, and that make her uh, that make a lot of complication for her. And uh, her age now is 80 days. That also she has a repetitive uh, infection in the chest because uh, she's complaining from repetitive uh, aspirations uh, to the upper to the lower respiratory system. Uh, one of the time uh, early in her in her early life, she was complaining from pneumonia, aspiration pneumonia, uh, because of uh, she swallowed or, or she aspirated her own uh, saliva, and uh, that's all. That's all. <laughs> Iraq's broken children need love and care. And they need to know what's causing this terrible tragedy. I'd want to have more children. I hope so. I'd love to have more children. But I'm scared. Everybody's scared to have children. here. And all the children die, die straight away. His head was so big. I'd love to, but we can't. Fred Hardy with that uh, disturbing report. What do you what do you say? Fred tells us, by the way, that the uh, head of the Baghdad hospital where he was filming was gunned down on Thursday as she left work. The Iraqis are struggling to come up with uh, valid evidence of the causes of the deaths and deformities in their children, but this UK report done in Fallujah and published by the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health says, quote, we conclude that the results confirm the reported increases in cancer and infant mortality which are alarmingly high. The report also states that, quote, although we've drawn attention to the use of depleted uranium as one potential relevant exposure, there may be other possibilities. And our website this week includes a blog from our executive producer on our decision not to show some particularly distressing scenes from Fuad's Iraq report, plus links to research on uranium and deformities. That's at sbs.com.au slash dateline. Up next, the remarkable temple...
hands, mother to every orphan, you show grace in every season. No. English piece from Toby Fata, the Iraqi artist, called "My Homeland."
This piece is by Peter Blow. sits within plain view of the community. A sad reminder of the two generations of men from Delaney who worked for the mind that shook the world. To us, the land and the resources there is very sacred because of the fact that we rely on it to continue to live. And that very source is what actually caused damage to other people. It's very hard to Canada, uranium table here, People live nomadically on the lake. Then I hold in the kid to Mona at the Gokarati Sin, Suri at Dangalakarata on the Gutimolake, a Jiriakini shake and Lani at Dangalakarata on the. Where all the good places are for fishing year round. That's where the people used to stay, hunting, fishing, and trapping. Village of Widows recounts the tragedy of the Sahtu Dene people during World War II and for many years after to current years. The ore was sold to the U.S. military and became fuel for the bombs that devastated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Today, deadly radiation poisoning from the nearby mine has made the village of Delaney a community without grandfathers. Village of Widows was first broadcast to wide acclaim on Canada's Vision TV network in 1999 and remains both relevant and timely as Delaney are in Canada. For fishing all year long, like the Jungle River, Caribou Point, Deep River. This river, Kamsel River,
The terrible legacy of Hiroshima will live long into the future in the human genes. We now understand that radiation damage can skip generations. Not approached in the rehearsals. 